The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. My talk tonight, not tonight, this morning, (laughs) my talk this morning is called What We Miss. What We Miss. And the origin of this talk began a couple months ago when I came across a quote from a Scottish writer, Thomas Carlyle, 19th century Scottish writer, Thomas Carlyle. And the quote was, the tragedy, and what I want to say he also is using the... uh, what I call gender-limited vernacular of the 19th century. Um, The quote is, The tragedy of life is not so much what men suffer, but rather what they miss. The tragedy of life is not so much what men suffer, but what they miss. And this struck a chord with me just a kind of a theme of my life and also a theme of my teaching. And this also might remind some of you of the famous line from Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. Sort of a similar sentiment. Of course, Socrates said this while he was in jail um, for on trial for being encouraging his students to challenge accepted beliefs of the time and to think for themselves. And in this tradition, maybe what we would say is the tragedy of the unawakened life. So I'll talk a bit more about perhaps what we tend to miss and what it is possible to see, what's it possible to feel and experience, and what it's possible to realize as a human. And this does go back to my childhood. I think as this was a theme from very early on in my childhood that growing up in the 50s in a, mm, I would describe it as a somewhat barren suburban existence. I had this strong feeling of that something was missing and what I was being taught and shown and observed around me from people and that there was uh, something, there was more to life, there was more to this experience of existing than I was being uh, led on to. And it seemed to me that there was a lot of what I would call half-lived lives, uh, often a kind of shutdown or dullness around me. And I often went into the little bit of wild nature that was left in suburbia, to find something that felt more vivid and real and alive. And it still saddens me to this day, often in meeting people and talking to people, that, that there's a, a level in which people are often shut down or cut off. And more and more you see it through being too busy, too distracted, too agitated, too restless, too impatient. Those seem to be qualities of modern Western American technological life. 
so that, to a great degree, that I find that, to quote Mary Oliver, that people aren't here for your one wild and precious life. The people actually miss out on your one wild and precious life. Another story from my younger years when I was about 19, and this was a pivotal experience in um, turning me, you might say turning me towards the Dharma, although it was a couple years later when I was 22 that I actually discovered meditation and Buddhism. But I went on a um, five-week backpacking trip course, actually, in Wyoming through the National Outdoor Leadership School. Maybe some of you have done that. It's quite a demanding (laughs) training. And for the the last week, I tell the story because it has a variety of different points to it, so maybe I've told it before somewhere you've heard it. Um, the last week of the five weeks, they divided us into small groups. This is in real wilderness. This is without trails. We're not like doing some nice hiking trails. We're bushwhacking. We're using maps and bushwhacking through the Wind River Range. This is quite (laughs) demanding travel with very heavy packs. And um, so for the last week, they divided us in small groups, as I recall, maybe four in a group. And they gave us, uh, we all had maps, and they showed us where we were in the map, and they showed us where we wanted to be in in a week. And it was a long ways, as I recall, something like 50 miles. And we needed to find our way to that trailhead, and they didn't give us any food. So we were supposed to <laughs> find our food. This is without, of course, um, this is, I don't really, this, to this day I'm not really sure what they were expecting. <laughs> we had no hunting skills and, um, or implements, so this meant uh, gathering. <laughs> And this meant traveling a lot every day. And to make a long st- ordeal, no, to make a long story short, um, we didn't find much food. A few minor green things or um, some puffballs. <laughs> and made some tea from things we found. Um, so when we actually arrived on the right day at the right place, um, very hungry, and uh, actually, I was twenty pounds lighter after the five weeks than when I started, and I wasn't heavy when I started. <laughs> um, so, but we met at the trial. There was a truck there, and then they they offered us some food, some fruit, and I remember someone handing me a banana, and I remember just for a moment. And if you've ever been. I suppose, uh, I wouldn't say I was starving at that point, but, you know, I actually, uh, after burning that many calories, I was probably as close to the body starting to be in that mode than I've ever been in my life. And um, uh, I remember just first, just like, oh, just standing there for a while, like, wow, <laughs> just this taking in this miracle of this banana, 
something that prior to that point had been ordinary and something I, I certainly took for granted. And I remember, this is before I knew about mindfulness and presence, but I remember very slowly peeling it with a kind of attention that and concentration that I, I um, was um, intense. And I remember very slowly eating it. And I think it was an ordinary banana, <laughs> but it seemed extraordinary. And um, what one of the lessons of that, of course there's lessons of presence and mindfulness and, and different things, but one of the, the lessons of that for me was was to see how much I took for granted, to see how much I wasn't present for my actual experience, ordinary experience, and how wonderful and miraculous ordinary experience can be. And that really set me on a path to find out how, how, do, I, how do I live a life that brings the... Um, richness and vividness and fullness of life to bear. And I have another story for you. Um, Not my story. Some of you may know this story. For all I know, the last person to give a Dharma talk here shared this story. You know, when you drop in on places like this, you never know what <laughs> what came before you. But this is a true story. And this excerpt I'm going to read to you is from the Washington Post. In a Washington, D.C. metro station on a cold January morning in 2007, a man with a violin played six Bach pieces. During his performance, approximately 2,000 people went through the station, most of them on their way to work. Three minutes after the young man began playing, a middle-aged man slowed his pace and turned to look at the musician, but kept on walking. Half a minute later, the violinist received his first dollar. A woman threw the money in the hat without stopping. Not until six minutes into the performance did someone actually stand against a wall and listen. A three-year-old boy tried to stop and listen, but his mother tugged him along hurriedly. The kid stopped, looked at the violinist again, but the mother pushed harder and the child continued to walk, turning his head to look at the musician as he walked away. This action was repeated by several other children. Parents, without exception, forced their children to move on quickly. In the 43 minutes that the violinist played, seven people stopped what they were doing to take in the performance. Seven. Twenty-seven gave money, most of them on the run, for a total of $32 and change. The remaining 1,070 people hurried by, oblivious to the music, few even turning to look. As he finished playing, silence took over. No one noticed. No one applauded. He received no recognition. The violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the greatest musicians in the world. He played some of the most intricate pieces ever written, 
with a violin worth three and a half million dollars. Two days prior, Bell sold out a theater in Boston where the seats averaged $100. This is a true story. Joshua Bell, playing incognito in the metro station, was organized by the Washington Post as a part of a social experiment about perception, taste, and people's priorities. In a commonplace environment at an inappropriate hour, do we perceive beauty? Do we stop to appreciate it? If we do not have a moment to stop and listen to one of the best musicians in the world playing some of the finest music ever written with one of the most beautiful instruments ever made, how many other things are we missing in life? So why do we miss miss much of our life? Well, as I said in this tradition, we often use the term awakening, that we are in a process of awakening, which kind of implies we're all a bit, at least in part, asleep, perhaps to varying degrees at varying times. There's a um, transpersonal psychiatrist, Arthur Dijkman, calls it the trance of ordinary life. And this is a quote from him. So habitual is the trance of ordinary life that one could say the human beings are a race that sleeps and sometimes awakens, but does not usually fully awaken, because half awake is sufficient for the task we customarily do. Few of us are aware of the dysfunction of our condition. You could say in some ways that Buddhism is pointing out <laughs> perhaps the inherent suffering or the inherent dysfunction of our condition of not being awake. And if you know the legend of the Buddha, the story of his path, in some ways in the first part of his life he was kind of in a trance or asleep in... Um, you might say the pleasure realms, until he got some wake-up calls to look at his life differently. And um, the wake-up calls, I call them, they're called the four heavenly messengers, I like to call them the four heavenly wake-up calls of aging, illness, death, and uh, the, the path of awakening. So I, I, I think if I, I, there's different types of Dharma talks. <laughs> and this type, <laughs> the type I'm giving to today, this morning, I, I think of as a, a wake-up call Dharma talk. And I encourage you to consider this and, and not have to hit bottom before we wake up and start to see what's possible in our life. So, another way to put it is many of us are going along on uh, autopilot or semi-autopilot, sort of humming along through our lives with not a lot of awareness, perhaps being driven a bit by old expectations or hopes or hurts or preconceived ideas or ambitions or habits. 
and we tend to live out much of our conditioning, conditioning from our childhood, without quite as much questioning of it as we could, or perhaps seeing how much it's actually driving our life. And we spend a lot of time caught up in the what you might call the ego's small agenda, the small self, the stories, the stories about superiority or inferiority, how am I doing story, <laughs> the stories of safety or danger, of getting or losing, of being good enough, of success and failure. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh says, we are very good at preparing to live, but not very good at actually living. <laughs> so much of our life can be kind of a preparation for living. We think we're going to get everything right, we're taking care of business, but we actually haven't stopped to actually live our life fully. So we get caught up, and uh, one way I like to say we can fly right past our destination, caught up in our busyness, caught up in our laptop. I like to think of, um, you know that happened, was it last year, the year before, when that, those pilots <laughs> um, were on their, had, were they, they, the plane was on autopilot, and they were kind of on autopilot, <laughs> and they were on their laptops and actually missed their destination in Minneapolis and flew by. <laughs> and that's a bit how we are, literally, often, nowadays, caught up on our laptops, not really paying attention to what the, you could say, the important journey is and where we're headed. And so we miss it. So, in doing that, we often sacrifice the possibility and the potentiality of being human. We sacrifice the depth of healing and transforming of our heart and mind that can happen. And we sacrifice a profound freedom and joy and happiness that comes from that. And we often sacrifice that for what I would say a false sense of security and safety or seeking a false sense of security and safety because ultimately any kind of security and safety is rather provisional and limited and sometimes we're more comfortable with familiarity and the known and and the um, sometimes the dulling effects of that. This is from Anne Wilson Schaaf, from her book, When Society Becomes an Addict. It is in the interests of our society to promote those things that take the edge off, to keep us busy with our fixes, and keep us slightly numb and zombie-like. In this way, our modern consumer society itself functions as an addict. So we might think what we're addicted to, that keeps us a little shut down or cut off or numbed to the fullness and completeness of our life. 
So here, with meditation and practice, we're learning a kind of presence, a wakeful, connected, alive presence that is not driven by conditioning and the past and all our stories and mental constructions. You could say meditation practice is the art of waking up, of waking up the heart, of not missing what is truly important, of perhaps turning away from our obsession on what is not important, and a kind of direct knowing or seeing. And as the little prince said, as many of you know, to learn to see with the heart, which is a much more open, inclusive, direct way of connecting with what is And Rumi has a lovely poem. You may be familiar with this poem as well relating to this. For years, copying other people, I tried to know myself. From within, I couldn't decide what to do. Unable to see, I heard my name being called. Then I walked outside. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds meet. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. So part of this waking up is to actually see what is true in our life, to see the profound and in some ways uh, unresolvable predicament of the human life, which is demonstrated in a, a story of the two tigers. Some of you may know this story. I think it's a Zen story, but I'm not actually sure. Sometimes you hear these stories, you know, over the years. You don't know where they come from. And the story um, goes that there's a man or a woman running in the forest being chased by a tiger. And the... uh, Or maybe let's make it a little more local. Being chased by a mountain lion. (laughs) Comes to a cliff and sees that um, there's nowhere to go except over the cliff or to stay with the tiger or lion, excuse me. <laughs> and then the, it looks over the cliff and sees that there's a, a few feet down, there's a, a branch. And so he kind of jumps enough and holds on to the branch. And then um, so the tiger, I mean lion, <laughs> it's the first time I've used lion, so I have to... The lion's sort of looking over but realizes it can't actually, at this point reach the person. And then the um, person looks below, and what do they see at the bottom of the cliff? Another lion. (laughs) So this person looks above, and there's a lion. 
and they look below and there's a lion. What do they do? This is a metaphor for life, for birth and death. Our life, there's two lions on either side of our life. One end is birth and the other end is death. So this person is there in this predicament and they notice that growing out of the side of the cliff is a beautiful strawberry plant (laughs) with some very beautiful ripe strawberries. So holding on to the branch picks the strawberries eats them and enjoys them. So we need to face our predicament and see where we are in the present and live it fully in the face of the two two lions. My first teacher was a Zen teacher, a very um, dynamic and uh, energetic and um, sometimes unpredictable Korean Zen master in Sansanim, or his other name, formal name was Zen Master Sung Sung. This is in the in New England, and he would he. This is a quote from him: "Zen is the great work of life and death. What is life? What is death? What is life? What is death? When you attain this, then everything is clear, everything is complete, and everything is freedom." So I'm going to say a little bit. What is in the, what is in the here and now that we miss? Well, Proust said, "The voyage of discovery lies not in finding new landscapes, but in having new eyes." And meditation is really the process of taking away the veils and the delusions and the confusions and the habits so that we can refresh our eyes and to see with more clarity and directness and immediacy and openness. Sometimes people think, if I really do that, (laughs) then there'll be so much input, they'll be overwhelmed, I'll get lost in it, and sometimes people do get lost in it. And the truth is that there is more stimulus and more data, you might say, pouring into us than we could possibly consciously process in any particular moment. So in, although parts of our, you might say parts of our unconscious is doing that job for us, um, so in essence we must choose what we pay attention to. And you might say spiritual paths give us the direction of what to choose, of what to look for, of what is actually important to pay attention to in our lives. We've been taught and conditioned that there's a lot of, a lot of things are important to look at that actually aren't important to look at, to pay attention to, to obsess on, to think about a lot. You know, there's so much about how we appear to others, how we look. A lot of the superficiality of our culture has been given a lot of emphasis. So the spiritual traditions are saying, 
wait a minute, that's not what's really important. Here's some guidelines on what to pay attention to. So I'm just going to mention a few. So what do we pay attention to? One thing is we pay attention to the process and patterns of our experience as opposed to just the content, the storyline, the superficial appearance of things. Sort of drop down and see what is happening here? What are the patterns? What's the actual process? And one of those things, one of the most fundamental in this tradition is to watch the process, the pattern of our habits uh, of reactivity. Now this one you'll hear in different ways over and over again in this tradition. To notice our habit of grasping after what we want, of pushing away what we don't, of shutting down the rest. So I encourage you, just paying attention to how this pattern of reactivity plays out and the suffering that that leads to can actually um, lead you to a place of letting go and freedom. One of the other things we pay attention to is the actual fleeting nature, the changing flux, ephemeral, impermanent nature of experience. That everything that we can experience is always in a flow and beginning to then um, be able to... that helps this process of letting go, of opening, of allowing things to be. Another thing to pay attention to, sometimes called the consequences... Consequences of our intentions, our beliefs, our attachments, our actions, cause and effect. To begin to learn what, um, what leads to more suffering and what leads to more freedom. Another thing to pay attention is to the actual process and experience of the thinking mind. Most of us, how much of the time, are caught up in actual the content of our thinking being driven by it, being lost by it, being confused by it. So can you actually begin to see what is the nature of the thinking mind? What is the nature of having thoughts? What is that experience actually like? Am I my thoughts? Who am I without my thoughts? Very important experience. Another thing to look at is how we get caught up in this identification and fiction of the, what I call the drama of me. (laughs) This story of, uh, constant story of uh, um, what's happening to me? How am I doing? Am I doing it well enough? Um, we're, We're pretty much obsessed with, you know, what we want, what we don't want, ignoring the rest that also much of our life, and I'm working with people and I see this even in myself, a lot of life can actually be spent trying to avoid imaginary experiences that might happen. (laughs) That's called worry (laughs) and anxiety. That we create all these projections in the future and then we kind of like, oh, how can I... That might happen, so I'll do this and so forth. Carlos... Uh, Oh, no, before Carlos Castaneda. Mark Twain has a wonderful quote. I am an old man, and I have known a great many troubles, but most of them never happened. (laughs) And that's true of us. How many catastrophic worries have you had that 
never happened and yet undermined the quality of your life. Carlos Castaneda in the voice of Don Juan says, Dwelling upon the self too much produces a terrible fatigue. And I think we're all a little bit subject to that fatigue. A man in that position, a man or woman in that position, is deaf and blind to everything else. The fatigue itself makes him cease to see the marvels all around him. So we move from just the story of me, what I want and don't want, am I succeeding, failing, am I liked, am I not liked, um, to what is actually happening to the wider world. We start paying attention to what this journey is really about. And we can pay attention in that to the actual wisdom and depth and feedback and information of our own living bodies, which have been here for uh, evolving for a few million years. You think there might be something important there to know, so I encourage that. We can pay attention to what is actually in our own hearts, become literate, learn the emotional intelligence. We can, as we become familiar with our own hearts, we become familiar with the hearts of others. We can pay attention to the natural world, to the more than human world. In some ways, the essence of this path is to see the nature of things as they are and live in harmony with it. And to do that, to actually observe the more than human natural world will teach you tremendous dharma lessons about who you are and what is happening, about the nature of permanence and interconnectedness. We can pay attention to the simple joys and pleasures and beauty that abound. You know, one thing as I work with people, and particularly people who are first introduced to mindfulness, and I also teach um, mindfulness-based stress reduction, is they suddenly wake up and notice that they're enjoying the smallest, simplest activities of life, of uh, just moments of quiet, moments of noticing what's actually in their garden, moments of noticing another person. And this relates to the uh, Joshua Bell story. And suddenly people start shifting from giving value over to accomplishing and producing and completing, writing and completing lists to, to actually just opening to what is here. The mystic novelist Romaine Roland said, there is only one heroism in the world, to see the world as it is and to love it. Are you willing to try that on? Another thing we can notice is the power of simple kindness. And related to that, opening to the depth, this may not seem like something you want to pay attention to, but opening to the depth of suffering in yourself and the world because that is the gateway to the possibility of great compassion and wisdom. And lastly, the thing I want to mention that we often 
don't pay attention to or don't even know how to pay attention to, which to me is what the, um, the perhaps, well, the gift of any mystical path and the gift of Buddhist path is we miss our own Buddha nature and then we miss the very magic and mystery of being. We miss the greater, you might call the greater reality than our conventional materialistic experience. And this is sometimes called true nature, the nature of reality. I have one teacher called it source. It can be called the absolute. Nature of mind. That's often what it's called in Tibetan practice. Nibbana. Divine presence. Could be a lot of different words for it. But our spiritual path directs us to how we cut through and open up to actually... being able to apprehend something larger. This is from Zen teacher Tony Packer. The emergence and blossoming of understanding, love, and intelligence has nothing to do with any tradition, no matter how ancient or impressive, has nothing to do with time. It happens completely on its own. When a human being questions, wonders, listens, and looks without getting stuck in fear, pleasure, and pain, when self-concern is quiet in abeyance, heaven and earth are open. And this is right here and right now. The most ultimate and profound opening, letting go, experience is simply right here, right now and will never be anywhere else Um, a little story um, a metaphorical it was a true story but I use it as a metaphor I lived in Massachusetts for 25 years before I moved to California in 2003 and there because it's humid um, and because it's very hilly, you don't get to see big skies. And you, there often aren't real colorful sunsets. So one night I was driving home through this one valley that was quite open. And I live up in the hills there where you couldn't see the sky very well. And there was the most spectacular sunset, one of the most I'd ever seen. And I've seen some great sunsets in Colorado and many places. And um, unbelievable cloud formations and colors and I was sort of like, uh, you know, driving like that. And just before I went into the hills, where I knew I would lose it, I pulled over into an area. that was a convenience store, a little gas station, and an ATM booth. <laughs> and I just pulled over and parked, and I just, oh, you know, enjoying the delight and wonder and the, the um, simplicity of that beauty. And then I looked around. There were a lot of people there. People going in and out of the ATM machine, people going in and out of the convenience store, people doing their car. And not one person was noticing the sky and the sunset. Not one person. And um, I kind of, maybe I should have, I kind of wanted to scream, Look up, (laughs) everybody! But I want to say that it, 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 as a metaphor, it's that simple. It's that simple. We just need to notice what's there. 
instead of being caught in our habits, in our agendas and getting things done and so forth. So what I'd like to say in the um, depth of our practice that mystery and awe and wonder become our best companions. And so that if we stop to listen, stop now, right now, what Tara Brock calls the sacred pause, just stop, listen, open, see the gaps, see the openness and emptiness that's here. To quote Thomas Carlyle again, he said, I don't pretend to understand the universe. It's a great deal bigger than I am. (laughs) And I encourage you to remember that daily. It's one reason why I like to go out and look at the night sky. You get a humbling, beautiful, wonderful sense of the mystery, the unknown, the something greater is happening. There's actually a show on PBS tonight, I think, about um, or, uh, on, the, on t- public TV about the edges of the universe. I like watching those shows. So we need to actually, again, let go of all our ideas about things. And this is from Rumi, and I, I think of this as in stock exchange language. He says, sell your cleverness, sell your cleverness, and by be- bewilderment. <laughs> and this is what, um, again, my Zen master, Sansanim, called don't know mind. It's those moments where we, we stop. And the mind is open and empty and actually begins to not conceptualize and judge and try to fit things in, but can actually begin to see. And what it begins to see is a kind of magic and aliveness and a vividness begins to see the dreamlike, ephemeral nature of this life of experience. It begins to actually open to the underlying openness and emptiness, expansiveness, spaciousness, stillness, and silence that is our true nature. I have this quote from an Australian Aboriginal elder, which I like very much. He says, Never forget... Everything's a mystery. Once it stops being a mystery, it stops being true. And then to really end, (laughs) Uh, this is from Jack Kornfield, his book, obviously, Wise Heart. which no matter how much I make photocopies, I can't get the whole page on, so I have to bring the book. Um, Of course, Jack wrote this, and I'm envious because I wish I had written this. (laughs) But I'll share this with you. What is most amazing of all is that we can spend days, even months, taking the mystery for granted. Of course, our automatic habits serve us and help us function. We might have a hard time functioning if we were in a constant state of awe, But the all-too-common deadening of our senses is far from the middle path. We are part of this mystery. Our eyeballs and eardrums, our voices and emotions, our delusions and awakening are woven together with and contained within the mystery. We are not only witness to this mystery, we are the mystery looking at itself. 
What he says next is kind of what I like to see in, as being a teacher. People who come to Buddhist practice hope that it will help them with the ordinary sufferings of their life, and often it will. But a deeper current flows through Buddhist teachings. When I sit with students, I do not just want to help them solve their problems. I want to find a moment. And this is the don't know moment. This is the sacred pause moment. This is the moment of cutting through. I want to find a moment with each person where the mind stops and their eyes open. I want to be, us to be together as if we're lying in a field on the underside of the earth on a clear summer night, held only by the magnet of gravity, looking down into a bottomless sea of stars. I want us to remember together the beauty all around us. Patricia comes in, in sick and frightened, but if she can let go and sense the preciousness and ephemeral dance of her days on this timeless earth, See that it's all a blessing. If Jalen can step out of being injured child and appreciate the mysterious dance that led to his adoption and current search for birth mother, his heart becomes wise. If Mary Linda can release her worries about retirement and sense the grace that has carried her and her children for 24 years, then our work together is a success. So I'm going to end there, have a moment of silence. And I've gone over a little bit, but I want to have a few minutes for any comments or questions. But um, let's just sit for a moment in silence, breathing, just allowing yourself to, as Ram Dass says, plumb the depth of the present moment. By just relaxing, opening, and being awake to what's here now. <laughs> 